Well, we are in a new year and we, we begin a new sermon series as well. It's very appropriate that we come to a sermon series as we think about prosperity. I think this book that we're about to study, the book of Exodus, is a wonderful book that helps us to think about where does prosperity come from. It comes from the true God. And, and this book is aimed at helping us to know this true God. So we'll be preaching through the book of Exodus from now till the end of June. You know, of all the stories in the Bible, the Exodus is probably one of the most uh, well-known. It is all the makings of an epic, you know, slaves longing to be free from a wicked king, a, a baby rescued from a river uh, who grows up to become the hero, plagues, you know, the Red Sea crossing, uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments. You know, Exodus is full of these amazing scenes and epic uh, scenes of, 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 how, of, of how God is working. You know, this story of how an entire nation of people is freed from slavery has even captured the popular imagination. You know, a number of movies have been made about the Exodus, such as, you know, those, of you, those of us who are a bit older, we remember Cecil B. DeMille's 1956 epic, The Ten Commandments. You know, those of us who are a bit Younger, we, we remember Disney's animated feature, The Prince of Egypt. You know, and more recently, Exodus, God and Kings, that didn't have very good reviews. But anyway, the Exodus story resonates with us because I think we, we understand this desire to be free. You know, but maybe we need to ask a deeper question as we come to Exodus. You know, what do we want freedom for? You know, what's freedom for? The biblical Exodus is about much more than the liberation of an oppressed people from worldly tyranny. You know, I think lib liberation theology misses the point about the book of Exodus. Because what matters isn't simply freedom, but who and what our freedom is for. You know, in fact, only the first 12 chapters of this book touch on the events surrounding Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt. You know, most of the time when you watch a movie about Exodus... Uh, it, it covers essentially only the first 12 chapters of the book, but, but it, it, it kind of ignores the, the rest of the book, which focuses on worship. Right? So the first 12 chapters cover the redemption from Egypt. Chapters 13 to 19 of the book describe Israel's journey to Mount Sinai. And then the rest of the book, from chapters 20 to 40, have Israel camped at Mount Sinai, uh, and, and the focus of these chapters, which is just over half of the book, focuses on how God instructs Israel on how to worship Him. So really, the, 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 the main gist of Exodus is not just the, that dramatic redemption event, but the gist of Exodus is, is how God saves Israel for worship, for His glory. You know, Israel is slave from slavery to service, to serve God, and they are redeemed for worship. You know, Exodus was originally written by Moses for the Israelites as they journeyed through the wilderness to the promised land. And I think it was probably written for a new generation of Israelites because the first generation had died out in the wilderness. And this new generation had to be taught about this God who had worshipped their fathers from Egypt. You know, they, they needed to know who this God is and what he had done for them. Now, Exodus also matters to us today because we are tempted 
by competing voices telling us to find our identity, our purpose, our meaning, our prosperity apart from God. And Exodus reminds us of who, we, of who God is. He reminds us of what He has done for His people. Exodus also reminds us of who we are in the sight of this God and how we should live as God's people. So really, Exodus, the point of Exodus is to help us to recover a big view of God. That's, that's the point of Exodus, that we might have a big view of God. You know, there's this book, there's this Christian book that was written that, where the title is People Are Big and God is Small. And I wonder if, that, if that's something that we struggle with, right? People are big in our own minds, in our own views, but God often is small. Well, Exodus hopes to reverse that to help us to see that God is big and people are small. So who's the hero of Exodus? It's not Moses. It's certainly not the Israelites. God is the hero of Exodus. And maybe there's something that some of the movies and the stories in popular media, they miss as well. God is the hero of Exodus and He reveals His glory by saving Israel and by judging Egypt. His glory is revealed in salvation. His glory is revealed in judgment as well. And as I said earlier, that the point of Exodus is so that we might know Him, know this God. Not just know Him intellectually, but know Him and trust Him and hope in Him. That we might worship Him. Because this God has set sinners free from sin to serve Him. You know, He has set us free from slavery to bring us into Slavery. Slavery to Him. It's a good slavery. We serve Him and enjoy Him. We are redeemed for worship. So the, the book begins with a prologue in verses 1 to 7. Verse 1 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Exodus begins by picking up where Genesis left off. You know, in fact, the, the first word in Exodus, we don't really see it in the English translation, but the first word in Exodus is and. Right? and every, every time you see a conjunction, what do you do? You, you, you look at what comes, what, what's come before. So that even that first word in, in the Hebrew Bible uh, tells us that we should look back to Genesis to catch up on what, what the story has been so far. So Exodus begins by picking up where Genesis left off. Genesis ended with Jacob and his sons in Egypt. You know, in fact, if you just look over to the book of Genesis, the very last verse, the last two words in Genesis are in Egypt. So Exodus 1 to 6 continues the story of Abraham's descendants that began in Genesis. You know, this prologue, these first seven verses of Exodus make the point that God remains faithful to His promises, which He made in Genesis to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You know, those generations may have passed away, 
but God will still keep His word. Now, recall how God made a covenant with Abraham and promised that He would make Abraham's name great. He promised Abraham that he would be a great nation. His descendants would become a great nation. And we, we read about these promises in Genesis 15, uh, verse 13 and 14, where the Lord says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, uh, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So that's the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis, and he guaranteed that promise of a covenant. And, and here in the beginning of Exodus, we are meant to remember God's promises to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis. Exodus is the sequel to Genesis, and to properly understand Exodus, one of the best things we can do is to read Genesis. Because all the promises that are unfulfilled when Genesis ends are about to be fulfilled in Exodus and the next few books, and the next, yeah, the, the several books that come after Exodus. You know, I think we learn that God's promises do not end with death. You know, God's promises do not end with the deaths of the patriarchs. You know, beloved, if, if we belong to God, our Savior through, if we belong to God through our Savior, Jesus Christ, then we can rest in the certainty of His promises. Even our death will not end the promises of God. He is faithful. Nothing will separate us from God's love for us in Christ. You know, Exodus reminds us that we do not have to be anxious. We do not have to fear. We can continue to hope and trust in this God who makes and keeps covenant. And this God is still working out His purposes for humanity, which He revealed at creation. You know, Exodus connects us back to Abraham, but it connects us even further back. We recall God's words to the first human pair, Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, where He says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Do you notice the uh, the echo of those words in verse 7 of our text. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You know, what's, what's Moses trying to tell us by referencing Genesis here in verse 7? Moses is trying to show us that Israel is the new Adam. This is like a new creation that's happening. Israel is the new Adam. Abraham's promise offspring, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head and bless all nations. And, and where will this seed of the woman come from? From Israel. Adam, Abraham, and Israel are all connected by God's covenant promises. And, and verse 7, or in fact, verses 1 to 7, help to make that clear. So these seven verses set the stage for the rest of Exodus. You know, the God of Exodus is the same faithful, covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling God of Genesis. The, the God who redeems is also the God who creates. God keeps His Word, and He saves in surprising ways. You know, this is the big idea of the rest of our passage. God saves in surprising ways through suffering, through the lowly, 
and through the birth of a son. And so those are the three points that we'll spend the rest of our time thinking about. So number one, God saves through suffering. Verses 8 to 14 of our text. Verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." You know, in Genesis, Joseph found favor with the Pharaoh. You know, this Pharaoh was very generous. He gave Joseph authority to rule on his, on his behalf. He gave Joseph's family a, a special plot of land in Egypt to kind of dwell and to do their thing. You know, but many years have passed since Joseph's death. And Egypt was under a new boss, right? You know, you know, what, it, you know what it's like, right? You get a new boss and suddenly your office life just changes. Well, Israel's under new management, or rather, Egypt is under new management. And the earlier Pharaoh had shown kindness to Jacob and his family, but this new Pharaoh sees Israel as a threat. And though fearful of the growing number of Israelites, this Pharaoh decides to enslave them, to kind of keep them under control by subjugating them, by subjecting them to forced labor. Maybe the Pharaoh was thinking, if I put them all to work, then they're less likely to revolt. You know, xenophobia, the fear of strangers, racism, discrimination, and these things are still in our world today. And they continue to divide the world. You know, beloved, the church should be different from the world. Right? You know, Egypt was suspicious of strangers. We, as God's people, we should welcome strangers and love one another, especially those who are different from us. Being hospitable is a vital part of our witness as God's people. And I think later on in the law, in Leviticus 19, I think God picks up on this idea of welcoming strangers, right? So don't be like Egypt. Instead, love and welcome those who are different from you. Leviticus 19, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You Treat him as one of your own. And you shall love him as yourself. And then Leviticus 19 gives us the reason for that. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. If God has welcomed us as strangers, estranged from Him into His family, then brothers and sisters, let's welcome strangers, especially those who come among us on on Sundays. Let's welcome them, get to know them, and, and let them get to know us. I think this is what we do for one another because we are God's people. I think these verses in verses 8 to 14 also tell us that our ultimate hope and security are not found in earthly powers. While we should pray and be thankful for good government, remember that God alone is our confidence and assurance. The government cannot save us. 
any other human institution cannot save us. You know, I, I think in, in, in this opening chapter of Exodus, we, we have a stark picture of that, don't we? Earthly powers come and go. Earthly powers rise and fall. You could have a favorable government and you could have an unfavorable government. They come and go. That's why the Bible reminds us that it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. You know, don't fear man or live for man's approval. Why? Because man is fickle. One pharaoh knew Joseph, the other pharaoh didn't, and the whole situation changed. You know, for example, if our motivation at work is simply to flatter our boss, to please him or her, and to make sure that he or her or he or she likes us, then we will, be, we will struggle to be content or joyful at work, especially if we have a difficult boss. Bosses come and go. Pharaoh's harsh treatment of Israel isn't just about politics. You know, if, if you look at some of these old archaeological images of the Pharaoh's crown, uh, on, the, on the head of the crown was a serpent, was a snake. You know, intriguingly, uh, the snake was a symbol of royalty in ancient Egypt. You know, the, the Pharaoh's crown had a cobra on them, right at the front, just above his forehead. Now, I think this is a conflict between the serpent and, and God. I think Exodus is, is being set up to help us to see that this conflict between Pharaoh and Israel goes deeper than just a nation trying to subjugate another people. Ultimately, this is a spiritual conflict between God and Satan. Now recall what God said to the serpent in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know, Pharaoh is opposing not just Israel. Pharaoh is opposing the very promises of God who pledged to grow Abraham's descendants into a great nation. Pharaoh is opposing God's plan, which is to give Israel the promised land. Pharaoh is opposing God's people whom God chose to be his treasured possession. You remember what God said to Abraham? You know, God promised to bless Abraham and to bless those who bless Abraham's offspring and to curse those who dishonor Abraham's offspring. So by mistreating Israel, Pharaoh was making himself an enemy of God. You know, later, later on, we'll see how the ten plagues are God's judgment against Pharaoh, against Egypt's gods. You know, God is sovereign. His plan and promises cannot fail. Pharaoh tried to deal shrewdly with Israel, you know, but you see how his devious plans backfire in these verses. You know, God's power and wisdom confound worldly cunning. Uh, look, look at verse 12. You see the irony in verse 12? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. You know, the, the more Pharaoh tried to put them down, the more they grew, the more they spread abroad. You know, the, the surprising irony in, these, in this verse is that this God saves, but He saves through suffering. He saves through suffering. So don't lose heart when we suffer. Our afflictions do not mean that God is absent or apathetic. 
or that his plans have somehow failed. For example, God grew the early church in Acts through suffering, through persecution. The gospel spread because believers were scattered, and as they were scattered, they preached the gospel. Likewise, God grows us, not not often in good times, but He, He grows us through trials. He has a purpose for our pain, even if those purposes might be unseen to us in that time. In fact, God's blessings can bring more trouble. Right? So simply because God blesses us doesn't mean we have a life of ease and comfort. You notice how here uh, it, it said that the more the Israelites grew, the more ruthless Pharaoh became. You know, times of spiritual blessing can coincide with times of trouble. It doesn't mean that things will be easy or comfortable. I think these verses encourage us to press on in faith, knowing that the promised son of Abraham has won for us the greatest blessing by enduring the greatest suffering. Number two, God saves through the lowly. Verses 15 to 21. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, this is verse 15, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it, is, if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Let's stop there. Pharaoh then comes up with a more sinister scheme to curb Israel's population. Now, Shifra and Pua are probably in charge of the other Hebrew midwives who help care for mothers and babies through pregnancy and delivery. You know, but now Pharaoh commands them to do the exact opposite of what they're supposed to do. Their task, Pharaoh sets for them, is to murder the baby boys as they are being born. You know, aborting the life of a newborn or unborn child is sin. It goes against the will of God, who is the giver of life. So the midwives are faced with a bit of a dilemma. Will they listen to Pharaoh and kill a newborn? Or will they fear God? Will they obey God? Well, we have the answer in verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. Now, to disobey the king of Egypt may well cost them their lives. But the midwives show their bold faith in God's promises by their faithfulness. They would rather take God's side and risk death than try to save themselves by doing Pharaoh's evil will. as, As Jesus told us, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And because the midwives sought to save lives, they are rewarded with new life. Right? They may have been unable to have their own children, but now God gives them families. 
Now, again, you see Pharaoh being thwarted, right? God is still multiplying the people of Israel by giving the midwives children. You know, and, and even more than that, he gives them true significance and a lasting legacy. You notice how the midwives are named? Shifra and Pua. You know, these midwives may be nobodies in the world's eyes. You know, they, they may have been so insignificant to Pharaoh. Right? He's just bossing them around, right? Telling them to do something as you know, devious as killing children. You know, he probably thinks nothing of these midwives. But in our text, these midwives are given names. Shifra and Pua. You, you notice how we know their names? And we have no idea who Pharaoh is. We don't know Pharaoh's name. It's not mentioned at all in any part of Scripture. No, in God's sight, the Pharaoh is the nobody in God's sight. You know, thousands of years later from, from these events, we still remember the midwives. Imagine that. You know, God honors those who honor him. Oh, friends, how might we be chasing after a name for ourselves? Whether at school, our careers, in our families, you know, or even in our Christian service, how might we be chasing after a name for ourselves? You know, are we impressed by worldly power? Are we impressed by worldly success? Are we impressed by worldly significance? Do we remember those who are successful in the world and we forget those who are seemingly unsuccessful in the world? Do we, not, do we pay more attention to people because they're successful? We pay less attention to people because in our eyes they seem less significant? Well, God does the opposite, doesn't he? Pharaoh is unnamed, but Shifra and Pua have names that endure. No, we should trust God to give us a name in Christ. You know, don't, don't find our significance in worldly success, worldly power, in achievement in this world. You know, find our name in Christ. Indeed, we receive a name from Him freely. Not because we deserve it, but because He's gracious to us. And He gives us a name that truly lasts. When questioned by Pharaoh, the midwives explain that Vigorous Hebrew women give birth faster than Egyptian women. You know, those of you who are doctors, you may have questions about that. <laughs> uh, so was this a lie? I, I think one of the questions we ask when we come to a verse like verse 19 is like, were the, were the midwives lying to Pharaoh? You know, the, the text doesn't explicitly tell us, but what the text does emphasize is that the midwives feared God. It was mentioned twice in the text. So, so I'm inclined to believe that the midwives didn't exactly lie, but, but maybe they didn't tell Pharaoh the whole truth, right? Maybe what they did was when they received Pharaoh's commands, they, they went to all the Hebrew women and said, look, if you're about to give birth, uh, don't call us too quickly. <laughs> you know, and then maybe they thought, okay, if I hear that there's a birth happening, I'm going to take my time and get to, the, get, to the, get to the pregnant mother kind of slowly. So that by the time I get there, the baby is already born. They say, oh, sorry, I, I can't kill a baby in front, of her in front of his or her mother, right? Or in front of his mother, right? So too late. So maybe that's what they did, you know, but they just told Pharaoh that the, the Hebrew, Hebrew mothers kind of give birth faster than their Egyptian counterparts. 
I, I think what's, what's kind of surprising as well is that Pharaoh believes them. <laughs> and, and Pharaoh does not put them to death. Right? Verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives. I think this is the surprising irony in our text. Right? Powerful Pharaoh, ruler of the world's superpower, is defeated by humble Hebrew midwives. You know, beloved, see the wisdom and power of God in our text. He saves through the lowly and not through human might, so that all glory goes to Him, not to us. You know, beloved, how can we be proud if we are saved by grace alone? You know, this is what it means to be saved by grace alone, right? It's not something that Israel accomplished for itself, but God, cho- God worked through these humble and lowly midwives. I think Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I, th- I think this challenges the way we often think, right? Sometimes we think, oh, if, if there are only more powerful people in the church, if there are only more educated or more successful people in the church, then maybe the gospel will be more persuasive. Oh, not true, friends. Not true. The gospel doesn't go out because we are successful and significant in the world. The gospel goes out because God is powerful, not us. The wicked schemes of even the most powerful man in the world come to nothing. The sovereign God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Isaiah 40. God will ultimately defeat Satan's sin and death by sending a suffering servant who is gentle and lowly The servant king conquers by humbly dying on a cross. And he calls us to humble ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. God saves through the lowly. And finally, God saves through the birth of a son. Let me start reading in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw, a child, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away 
and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. You know, once again, God works in surprising ways to thwart Pharaoh's plans. God has saved through suffering. Pharaoh forced the Israelites to become his slaves, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. God saves through the lowly. He ordered the midwives to kill every Hebrew boy at birth. But Shifra and Pua feared God rather than man. You know, however, the king of Egypt refuses to let up, and, and he, he tightens the screw even more in these verses that we just read. You know, he grows more wicked. He, he grows more evil in his plans. Right? Now he commands his own people, the Egyptians, to commit genocide against every Hebrew boy that is born. Right? Verse 22, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. You shall forcibly take these boys and expose them so that they die. But you shall let every daughter live. You know, how, how, will the Israelites to, how will the Israelites escape this kind of genocide, state-sponsored genocide? You know, I, I think it's remarkable that you, know, you have this big thing that's going on in Egypt, and then in the very next scene, you have quite a domestic scene. In chapter 2, verse 1, you know, amid the turmoil, of Pharaoh's wicked decree, a Hebrew man and a Hebrew woman get married. Both are from Levi, the tribe from which Israel's priests will come. You know, God, again, is showing His faithfulness and grace. You know, he unites this ordinary couple in marriage, and His plan continues, even in the darkest of times. And God blesses this man and this woman. Later on, we, we learn that their names are Amram and Jochebed. And he blesses Amram and Jochebed with a son who will be Israel's deliverer. You know, God saves through the birth of a son. And defying Pharaoh's evil intentions, the mother hides her child for three months. You know, it, it is because she saw that he was a fine child. I think this probably means that Jochebed, uh, yes, she had maternal instincts, and having maternal instincts, she wanted to protect her child as this child's mother. But I, I think this verse tells us that something more than that is happening. You know, Hebrews 11, in commenting on these verses later on in the Bible, Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So, they, so Amram and Jochebed, they, they hid Moses by faith, meaning that they, they trusted in God's saving promises. Now, this wasn't just maternal instinct at play. This was an act of faith because they trusted God's plans for his people because they trusted God's plans for their son, they protected Moses from Pharaoh's decree. I, I think the, the obvious application for us as parents, you know, as, as parents, are we willing to submit our desires for our children to God? You know, as, as a parent, I, I have to ask myself that. Am I willing to submit 
my desires, my plans, my ambitions, my goals for my children? Am I willing to submit all of that to God? Especially because society tells me I should want my children to do certain things. And society defines success for my children in a certain way. And do I submit myself to what society demands of my children? Or am I willing to submit my desire for my children to God's purposes for them, wherever He leads them? You know, the text doesn't explicitly say, but I believe Moses' parents submitted their desires for Moses to God. They trusted in God's promises and they understood that their son was to have some role, some part to play in God's plan to save his people. I, I think there's a, there's a nice parallel here to Jesus' mother, Mary. We, we, we read in Luke's Gospel how Mary treasured up what was said about her son and pondered them in her heart. And I think what happens next points to this understanding of Moses' parents. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. You know, the word basket uh, in, is the Hebrew word for ark. It doesn't pop up in our English translations, but you know, it, it's ark. It's the same word that's used for basket. You know, of course, when we hear the word ark, what do we think of? The flood and how God saved Noah from the flood. So Moses' parents would have heard of how God saved Noah and his family from the flood by putting them in an ark. And in the same way, Moses' mom, Jochebed, she's placing Moses in the ark on the water. She is entrusting her baby boy to the God who saves. That's what Jochebed is doing. Now, even as grievous a sin as the killing of young lives is overcome by God's grace. I think there's good news in the text. God saves even amidst genocide. You know, some of us may be burdened with the guilt of a past abortion. I think this passage speaks hope and comfort to us that God's grace is able to cover even the most grievous of sins. You know, God's grace is enough. You know, if, if you struggle with the guilt of past abortions, you know, take heart. Come to Jesus. His grace is sufficient. There is forgiveness. And though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God saves through a son. Meanwhile, the baby sister Miriam stands watching to see what will happen to her brother, and in a surprising twist, none other than Pharaoh's daughter discovers the child. And will she, like her ruthless father, have this baby killed? You know, I think somewhat providentially, the, the baby cries just as she opens the basket and compassion floods her heart when she hears the baby crying. And she disobeys her father by saving the baby. You know, and, and then seeing this, what does Miriam do? Miriam, very opportunistic, she immediately steps forward and volunteers to find a nurse for the child. You know, in a dramatic turn of events that only God could orchestrate, Moses' mother 
ends up being the child's nurse. You know, not only is Jochebed's baby rescued, but Jochebed gets paid <laughs> to take care of her own son. You know, don't, don't miss the amazing irony here in our text again. You know, Moses is saved by none other than Pharaoh's own daughter, who will raise Moses as a son, not a slave. You know, Moses will be educated in the best that Egypt has to offer. He'll grow up in Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh will, you know, in some ways, raise the one through whom God will save Israel and defeat Egypt. Yeah, isn't that ironic? But that's exactly how our sovereign God works. You know, even Moses' name is ironic. You know, it means son in Egyptian, but it also sounds like the Hebrew for draw out, right? As it says in our text in verse 10, right? Because she said, I drew him out of the water. So Moses' name tells us this son will draw out. This son will save by drawing God's people out of slavery. Again, God overcomes earthly power and he does so in a striking way. He doesn't work directly through signs and wonders. You notice how in these opening chapters of Exodus, God is not mentioned as doing anything. Right? God, God is strangely in the background in the opening chapters of Exodus. We, we, hear his, we hear him being mentioned, but we don't read of him actually directly doing anything. He works through surprising ways, in the background, quietly, and he works through ordinary people like you and me, you know, like the midwives, like a mother, like a sister, or even Pharaoh's daughter. He works through ordinary people like you and me to accomplish the extraordinary. I think the encouragement to us, God's brothers and sisters, is to take heart and be faithful in the ordinary things that God has entrusted to us. Just because we don't see God working in obvious ways doesn't mean that He's not at work. You know, don't despise the day of small things. You know, that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Right? Don't despise the day of small things. Thank God for how His grace is at work in ordinary ways in our lives to accomplish His purposes. God saves through the midwives, through Moses' mother and sister, and through Pharaoh's daughter. Now, how ironic that Pharaoh was most worried about Israel's men and who ends up saving the day here, the women. Pharaoh was defeated not by Israel's men, but by the nation's women, and even one woman who belongs to his own family. You know, praise God for godly women like Shifra, Pua, Jochebed, Miriam. And I think, sisters in Christ, this is encouragement for you all, that you play a vital role in strengthening this local church and advancing the gospel in serving the purposes of God. And for all of us, both men and women, will we emulate the faith of these faithful women who risked life in order to obey God? You know, like them, will we fear God and not man? 
you know, none of these events that we read about in Exodus 1 and 2 happen by chance. God is working out His salvation plan down to the last detail. You know, down, even the detail of having Moses' mom serve as his nurse and get paid for it. You know, praise God for how He saves in surprising ways. And I think the question for us, having looked at these two chapters, is do we know this God? Do we know Him? Do we trust Him? Do we worship Him? You know, this is why Exodus was written, not to just give us lots of fantastic facts about Israel and Egypt, but Exodus was written that we may know this God and trust Him and worship Him. And indeed, Moses' birth points to an even more miraculous birth. A virgin will conceive and bear a son whose name, Jesus, means God saves. It was like Moses, Jesus is born under a death sentence. We read about that earlier in Matthew 2. And Jesus escapes a wicked king who is determined to kill the Christ, God's promised king. Now, Jesus, God's son, is also called out of Egypt. And in, in, in that account, Satan, the ancient serpent, seeks to devour the seed of the woman. But Jesus will defeat the devil. How? Not through human conquest, but by laying down his life for sinners like us. Jesus obeyed his heavenly Father even unto death. And although Jesus is fully God, he made himself nothing. He bore the punishment for our sins that we might be forgiven through faith in him. And Jesus rose from the dead in victory giving us new life and freeing us from our slavery to sin and death. You know, God saves in surprising ways through His Son, who is humble and lowly, through His Son who suffers on our behalf as the suffering servant king. This Son has redeemed us not to live for ourselves, but to live for Him who laid down his life for our sakes. This son has redeemed us for worship. So how are we living for the glory of this son? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you are the God who saves. We praise you for your sovereign wisdom and goodness. Father, indeed, you work in surprising ways. You work in ways that are unexpected, ways that run counter to how we are inclined to work. And you do so not for our glory, but for your glory, so that you might receive all praise and worship because only you alone are able to save. So Father, help us. As we've heard your word, we pray that you would help us to behold your majesty, help us to glory in you and not in ourselves. Father, even as we... Uh, spend the rest of this day uh, visiting with friends and family. Father, we pray that you would also help us to tell them of who you are and, and how you have saved through your Son. Help us to be bold witnesses for the kingdom. We thank you for all your grace and mercy to us. We pray that you would use us for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.